want to invite you to a conversation that we had with Brad Reynolds, one of the great knowers of Ken Wilber's work on the planet right now. So whether you know Kent or not, you're going to love this. I think you'll find it mind-blowing and definitely paradigm-rattling. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers, Contemplatives, and Activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy, author of the classic Integral Recovery and founder of the Integral Recovery Movement. Today, we have the opportunity of looking at the synthesis of the enormous amount of information we have. The information explosion keeps exploding, and we're inundated with information and drowning in data. How to make sense of it all? That's one of the real questions of our time. Unfortunately, at the very time when we need the most, some people have stepped forward and begun to create what are called meta-theories, overarching maps of human knowledge. And the greatest of these big-picture thinkers is Ken Wilber, founder of what's called Integral Theory, a system for mapping and framing and understanding Frankly, the whole of human knowledge, how to make sense of it, how to integrate it, how to see how it relates, different parts relate to each other. And Wilbur is a prodigious synthesizer and a prodigious reader. And I often say you can read 500 books or I can read the one in which Ken Wilbur synthesizes them all. But Wilbur has now himself written a couple of dozen books and it takes quite a bit to get through those. But fortunately, we have with us today Brad Reynolds, who has devoted much of his life to studying and exploring Ken Wilber's integral theory, and has written two of his own books, which provide beautiful introductions and overviews to Ken Wilber's life work and to integral theory. Those books are first Embracing Reality, The Integral Vision of Ken Wilber, which gives a chapter-by-chapter -chapter guide to all Ken's major writings. And the second is, where's Wilbur at? Ken Wilbur's integral vision in the new millennium. Brad has other books, such as God's Great Tradition of Global Wisdom. But today we'll be focusing on the thought of Ken Wilbur and having the opportunity of Brad guiding us through this huge body of work and thought and synthesis that Wilbur's created. Brad has devoted much of his life to understanding Wilbur's vast intellectual output. And I guess the obvious question is, Brad, what what led you to devote so much of your life to understanding Ken Wilbur's work and providing the beautiful syntheses you have? Well, thank you, uh, Roger and John, for inviting me onto this Deep Transformations podcast. And I'm very happy to talk about Ken because he was a major influence in my life one of my mentors. And what led me to getting involved in Wilbur's work was way back in 1982, as soon as I had graduated art college over in Oakland, the California College of Arts and Crafts, I came across his book, Up From Eden, which had a 
hominid on the front cover crouched over and it said a transpersonal view of human evolution and immediately my ears picked up because ever since i was a child and watched lewis leakey national geographic shows and learned about the evolutionary development of humankind from hominids uh, i have been fascinated with human evolution in fact, I actually worked for the Institute of Human Origins, run by Don Johansson, who was the man who discovered the Lucy fossils, the Australopithecus afarensis, right? And so Wilbur's book immediately caught my attention. And once I bought it and started reading it, I was living in Berkeley at that time, I was astounded by how it covered so much of evolution from early archaic hominids all the way up through the development of paleolithic shaman tribal cultures into civilizations finally up into the modern world and not only that wilbur had a depth in his presentation because he included the human world views the different stages of development that humanity went through from archaic to magical to mythic to mental to integral that showed an understanding that I couldn't get from the scientific books, right? And not only that, Wilbur had a highly developed sense of an understanding of the mystical traditions, you know? So he was presenting Buddhist place within this great evolutionary developmental arc and how Jesus fit in there and how all the great adepts of the world religions brought a higher form of consciousness into their historical period. And as advanced tipped individuals, they helped evolve all of human race. And, you know, scientists don't talk like that. And it, it was just really fascinating and as it turned out, there was this, he was also suggesting not only as human, the human race evolved, but also that the adepts themselves have evolved in their teachings. Their teachings have gotten more profound as the years have gone on or better expressed. And there was this one footnote, I think on like page 320, that happened to mention, he thought that the 20th century had shown some of the world's greatest adepts. And he mentioned Aurobindo, he mentioned Sri Ramana Maharshi, and he mentioned this guy, Bubba Frijan, right? And I said, well, you know, I know who Aurobindo is. I've heard of Ramana Maharshi, though I didn't know him very well. But who is Bubba Frijan? Well, it turned out that Bubba Frijan was Da Frijan, who is now Adi Da. And I went and found some of Adi Da's books, and I was so impressed that Adi Da became my guru. And as it turned out, Ken Wilbur was doing a book signing at Shambhala Bookstores in Berkeley, and I wanted to go shake the hand of the man who turned me on to my guru. So Ken, as you know, is pretty reclusive, and he does not get out in the public much. So it was a very rare opportunity back in 1982, October 22nd, because he signed my book, A Sociable God, that had just been come out. And of course, he was impressed that somebody would actually walk up to him and want to thank him for turning him on to a guru, right? And we exchanged addresses at that time. In fact, uh, Ken at that time was living with Roger Walsh. And in a year or two, he had met Treya over at Rogers. 
And so I had a couple opportunities to drop by and take some material from Adidas organization over to Ken because Ken was a big supporter at that time. And we just kind of got to know each other. I'd bump into him in Mill Valley every once in a while and he would go, Brad. And I'd go, God, Ken Wilbur, the world famous philosopher, remembers my name. <laughs> And then I began to go to the California Institute of Integral Studies in the 1990s and had the great privilege of working with studying under people like Stan Groff and uh, Richard Tarnas, William Irving Thompson, and all these wonderful professors. And so I started writing papers, and I noticed that a lot of them were very critical of Ken's work, which surprised me because Ken was world-renowned at that time. They all loved him, but they were also critical. So I wrote a few papers defending Ken's work, and then I sent my papers to Ken. And amazingly, he was so impressed, he asked me to come and work with him and write some books explaining his more complicated theories to the general public. That was his intention. And this was around 1995 when Sex, Ecology, Spirituality came out, which we would call his phase four works, his aqual presentations. So from about 1995 to 2004, I got to work directly with Ken. I got to ask him any question I wanted. We basically almost communicated with each other daily, usually through written. Those were back in the days of fax machines <laughs> before emails even started. So that's how our relationship developed, and that's how my two books developed. This one, Embracing Reality was a result of him asking me to go through each one of his books and summarize the chapters in a few paragraphs, which I found to be an extremely daunting task. But fortunately, I had been buying and reading Ken's books as the years had gone on since 1982. So I was basically up to speed. And, you know, what a privilege that was for some Hoosier from Indiana, living out in California, to be able to work with, as Roger recognized, one of the world's great philosophical geniuses. In fact, one of the quotes I liked about Ken, he says, perhaps the simplest way to explain my work is to say that it's a synthesis of the world's great religions, and then throw in the world's great philosophies and psychologies to boot. There you have it. <laughs> Which is pretty much it, right? Yeah. So so let's step back. You've you've had the privilege of working closely with Ken and you've also given a very detailed study of his work, as detailed as anyone I know. And you've gone further than that and provided overviews and syntheses and introductions. So will you step back? What do you think Ken's place in, in history is? Well, that's a Interesting question. I think personally, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, he will be one of the few people that people will still be reading. I think he's going to have a profound impact just like Hegel did, but even more so because one of the beauties of Ken's work that transcends postmodern philosophers and other philosophers of different systems in today's modern culture is that Ken is always encouraging people to take up mystical practice and taking up spiritual practice and understanding the higher transpersonal dimensions of reality is always going to be something that humanity is going to want every generation. 
And artificial intelligence is never going to be able to take that away from us because those type of understandings and realities exist deep within our own heart. And all humankind has, throughout all of the millennia, has always wanted that. So Ken's always going to have an appeal, let alone the fact, as you both know, John and Roger, that Ken's writing, the way he can write and explain the most complex and difficult topics so simply and so articulately is, you know, beyond compare to anybody else I know within our our generation. And that was part of the attraction that people had to him. He's so incredibly deft at being able to explain things that are so hard. And I think people will always need that type of explanation moving forward throughout history. To preview, we'll want to go through in more detail some of the some of his works and books as you've done in your book, Embracing Reality. But first, maybe you could, this is a very difficult question because Ken has probably come up with more new ideas, more important new ideas than anyone I know. But what do you think of as his main contributions? Well, I would tend to put an emphasis on the evolution and the development of consciousness through a spectrum model. I, I could agree more. Yeah, right on. Yeah. And Brad, I was going to ask you, I tried to ask you before, but I had I, I was muted. So I was going, God, these guys, they won't let me say anything. <laughs> and, uh, but were, was there any, this is like even going back further than when you first met Ken and that led to your, you know, your development. Had you had first-person experiences, uh, spiritual, mystical, peak, non-dual that prepared you so when you finally, when you did meet Ken, things started clicking. Yes. Was there stuff that needed it? Yes, that's absolutely true, uh, John. You know, I was a child during the 60s, so I was a young adult in the 70s. And of course, as most of my friends and people in my generation, I experimented with the drugs but I didn't just use the psychedelics as a party tool, which almost everybody I knew did. I actually used them as an entheogen, as a way of trying to understand what was going on, because it was pretty obvious to me that the scientific consumer culture I'd been born into did not provide the answers that I needed. Even though I did spend some time trying to explore Jesus Christ. I wasn't satisfied, and so I turned my attention to the East. So since the mid-70s, I had been studying Taoism. In fact, I was surprised when I read that Ken was first inspired by Lao Tzu as well, as was I. As you might know, Lao Tzu's famous Tao Te Ching, the first chapter, starts it all off where he says, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of the 10,000 things. Therefore, rid yourself of desires in order to observe its secrets, but allow yourself to have desires in order to observe its manifestations. These two are the same, yet differ as they issue forth. Being the same, they are called mysteries. Mysteries upon mysteries. That is the gateway to the manifold secrets of spirituality. And so that inspired Ken, and that also inspired me. I wanted to enter that gate and find out about those manifold secrets of spirituality. 
And of course, one of the things I found out, just like the Beatles did, is that drugs aren't the answer. So I turned to meditation. And Ken was a very well-developed meditator. So by the time I came across Ken, I had already had a deep experience of the divine reality that we all inhere in. And so his words really resonated with me. I felt I was reading somebody that had actually lived and experienced the same truths that I had experienced. So when he looked through the view of the prism of history, I resonated with what he was seeing, that the higher states of consciousness that he was bringing forward, mostly he used the, the tools of Buddhism to express those deeper truths. But I saw them as universal truths, as Ken does too. A lot of times people accuse Ken of being Buddhist, right? But he's really universal. In fact, it was the perennial philosophy that he introduced me to that was the foundation upon a lot of the statements he was making about the higher transpersonal realms. And I, it was like, wow, I just discovered, you know, Fort Knox. <laughs> it was a gold mine of wisdom. And just like Roger said, it was like, wow, I don't have to read all these other books now. I can just start reading Ken Wilber books, right? But I was an artist. What did I know, right? You know, I was working, I got a job painting barracks for the Navy. But then during lunch break, I'd go out to my car and I'd be reading A Sociable God. And I never had any inclination that I would end up being able to actually work with Ken Wilbur 10, 15 years later. So it was a slow process of development for myself as well. So thank you for that question. Yeah, but you did come to work with him and you came to synthesize his his work as no, no one else has. Well, people have tried, but I think yours is the most comprehensive and, and most detailed. Let's see, we'll want to get into the kind of development of Ken's thought, but one one more question about the big overview on on Ken Wilber's thinking, and that is what do you see as the most as the major themes that run through his work? You've mentioned a couple, like the emphasis on Evolution. John mentioned it. You both mentioned evolution of consciousness, and you've pointed to a couple of others. But what do you see as the main themes that get emphasized through Ken's work? Well, another good question that could probably take a half hour to go through. But I don't know. Just off the top of my head, I think the pre-trans fallacy was a very important discovery in which he explained how. The pre-personal structures of consciousness, which involved magical and mythical civilizations, preceded the rise of modern science. But then the transpersonal or mystical states of consciousness were really only experienced by a small population in historical times. The masses themselves were living under the sway of magical and mythical thinking which you can see our great religions still reflect a lot of that. Whereas the mystical trend was a higher development, and Ken helped clarify that. So what it became was an excellent way of critiquing scientific materialism, right? Ken offered a critique of modernity, and now even post-modernity, that other philosophers weren't able to really grapple with because they hadn't done the necessary work of cultivating the higher transpersonal states, which does take a lot of work. You've got to spend a lot of time meditating and studying a tradition or studying under certain masters, which Ken did. 
Ken had Zen masters from before he wrote his first book because he was exploring these great things. So being able to critique the disasters of modernity, yet at the same time, Ken really found a way to have mysticism include the rational, right? Transcend and include was another one of his major themes that had not really been effectively understood before. So the mythic included the magical shamanic cultures, but it transcended it. It offers something more. And then the mental structure transcended and included both the magical, archaic, and mythic structures. And mysticism, or integral thinking, transcends and includes all that. Ken didn't want to dispense with science. He wanted to include it, even if he transcended its weaknesses. And for our modern culture that is caught in this great cultural war between religion and science, it seemed to be an ideal solution where you can include both the positive aspects of religion and the positive aspects of science. And yet jettison their disasters and their failings and actually then create a greater, higher, expanded consciousness that has, you know, the tools of both of those. So that's a very important reality. And I think that's part of the reason so many people have been attracted to Ken's work. So a major, major feature of his work is his capacity to not do either or thinking, but both and, and to look at, and to, and to draw distinctions to see, well, you know, people are, that, that oh, so often in a, when we're examining something like religion, that's a vast topic, but even what religion means, I mean, Ken came up with about 12 different meanings of religion, and and so many times you see in Ken Wilber's work these confusions and conflicts that seem to go on forever, and yet Ken will look very carefully at exactly what different people mean by different different things, and once you have those distinctions, then a lot of the conflicts kind of dissolve. That's right, and that's the beauty of using the spectrum model, where you have these different levels of growth and different wavelengths. I mean, that's when he debuted his first book called The Spectrum of Consciousness back in 1977. That's what attracted us all. He was saying that, hey, all the different psychologies, because you had Freudian, Jungian, you know, transactional, all the different psychologies, he didn't say one is right and the others are wrong. He says each of them are addressing a different level on the spectrum. And just like all the different religions, it's not one of them's right or one of them's wrong. Each of them are addressing a different developmental awareness. So Ken then was able to look at religion and go, well, yeah, there's a bunch of different definitions of religion, but it kind of depends if you're talking about magical religion or mythic religion or, you know, even a rational religion, right? Or are you talking about a shamanic religion or, or a mystical religion? So that alone, you know, expands your capacity to being able to understand things that are usually put in an and or situation so as you were saying we will interpret these mystical experience according to where we're at on the scale so if you're you're at a very traditional level you're gonna it's gonna be very different from somebody who's postmodern. 
although it could be phenomenologically could be almost the exact same experience, but we will interpret according to where we're at in our journey. And, and sometimes, of course, it can be a great leap forward. You know, when you have one of these experiences, right. kicks you into the next level, not not beyond beyond the next level, but into the le- and maybe a taste of higher up. But you have to go back and do the work where you're at. You find yourself right now. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's an important part of the integral theory. But I'm glad you mentioned the fact that I think the stage that we're at, our center of gravity, as in Ken's terms, influences the way we interpret things. But it isn't the sole determinant because, as you were mentioning, John, there's also an, an attractor aspect of it. If you have a higher peak experience, a lot of times it awakens you to a new possibilities and you actually realize, wow, that actually felt more real than the old views that I had. And so it starts to send you in this process of deep transformation. Beautiful. Felt more real than reality. That's right. Yeah. Expanding your view on reality, because obviously reality is always already the case and reality encompasses all perspectives. <laughs> And you've already launched us into Ken's first book, Brad, uh, The Spectrum of Consciousness. And just to recapitulate, you're pointing out that in this first book, he was able to provide a a spectrum, as he saw it, spectrum of stages or levels of consciousness, and to map different psychologies and contemplative practices and traditions on that and make and to see that. There's been all this internecine warfare, say, for, within psychology between Freudianism and Jungians, and et cetera, et cetera. I've lived that in that world. But here was someone who, for the first time, was able to say, no, each of these addresses a different stage or state of on the spectrum of consciousness. And as such, each makes a, a valid but partial contribution to our understanding of the psyche and of and of human humankind and of the cosmos it was a beautiful absolutely right and that's why his reputation immediately skyrocketed right he had people like houston smith saying things you know the great world religion scholar saying things like ken wilbur must be a genius he's been working he is addressing topics i have been working on for 30 years and has clarified them for me you know yeah, I always thought spectrum. I saw spectrum consciousness like, oh, this was the book I hoped to write when I was about seventy. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. When I started reading Ken, I said, "Man, this guy's shot my work forward twenty years." <laughs> yeah. So that was that was Ken's first first major contribution was the idea of this spectrum of consciousness and the possibility of seeing that different psychologies and contemplative traditions address different levels of this spectrum. So so take us now on to, and, and so that's sometimes called Ken's phase one work, his spectrum view of, of right. everything. <laughs> but then there was a shift, what came to be known as phase two, where it was a develop, he introduced development. So t- take us through that, please. Yeah, that's a very important phase shift for Ken. So phase one is, you know, basically 1973 to 1978. He wrote The Spectrum in in 73, though it didn't get published until 77. And he actually caused the shift 
to phase two, the evolution revolution, his most dramatic change in his worldview, because he started writing the, the Atman project and he, you know, something wasn't working for him. He realized that the spectrum view he had presented wasn't involving the developmental thrust of consciousness development in the way that he felt was necessary. So he went through a real intense intellectual crisis, which he writes about wonderfully in an essay he wrote called Odyssey, My Personal Exploration or whatever. And he goes through the different, you know, discord he was feeling. And he said his whole body was aching because he couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so he put Atman Project aside and he started working on Up for Meden because he wanted to examine the historical evidence. And then on a Zen meditation retreat in the, the spring of 1978, when his Roshi said to him, the ego is the last boundary to the divine. I didn't quite get that right. Witness is the last stronghold. Is the, the stronghold of the ego. That's it. Ken all of a sudden had a satori in which he experienced the divine truth beyond the self-condition. And of course, the way he writes about it is unbelievable. So he had an awakening like the Buddha did. And that allowed him to see that the entire spectrum itself is grounded in the divine consciousness, right? And so the idea that spirit is not only the goal of development, it's also the ground in which all of the stages exist, gave him a key to unlocking the developmental evolution of the spectrum of consciousness. And of course, that is now the main thrust of his work, which of course now has been modified with the four quadrants you know the four quadrants happen on every level as you progress up but that's what then so he was able to finish atman project and then he finished up from eden and both of those books outline the developmental thrust of ken wilbur's entire career so that and that's what allowed him to uncover the pre-trans fallacy to look at the development from pre-personal to personal to transpersonal or from pre-egoic to egoic to trans-egoic, pre-rational to rational to trans-rational. And it was like he just burst forth in creativity because the man was putting out a book. Then he started putting out a book about every year, you know, so he put out Atman Project, Up from Eden, Eye to Eye where he talks about, he introduces the three eyes of knowing, knowing with the eye of the flesh or the physical senses or their extensions, like using microscopes, telescopes, the eye of the mind or the eye of reason, which is using theories then to use the data that you get with the eye of the senses, which is what science does, but then the eye of the spirit, which is using transpersonal meditative techniques and contemplation in order to open up new dimensions that go beyond the eye of the flesh and the eye of the mind, right? And then there was a sociable God where he applied this developmental theory to society and a sociology because the understanding of consciousness development affects the way 
the society works and the institutions run is an important aspect of what a true philosopher will provide. And Ken was able to do that. And then he was able to offer a critique on quantum questions, right? Well, Brad, let's let's go back to the development here because you because you made the very important point that you know this was the this was the breakthrough that Ken had and which allowed him to move into this new phase of his work and to to look at everything from human psychology to evolution to religions in developmental terms. But maybe we can give a little more detail on exactly what he laid out in his or discovered in his development, because this this was really the first time someone had given what he called a full spectrum view of development, tracing psychological development from infancy all the way through adolescence, normal adulthood, late adult stages, and then into transpersonal stages. So tell us something about that, because that's an enormous contribution. I hate us to gloss over it. Yes, it really is. So one of the ways that he addressed the different stages of development is he called them fulcrums, because you would go through a, a turning point of developing a new and higher worldview of transcend and include. So he used the work of developmental psychologists, particularly Jean Piaget, in tracing the development from, you know, sensory motor to pre-operational thought to concrete operational to formal reflexive operational, which basically is the development from an infant through childhood into adolescence to by the time you're 21 years old, you're an adult and you have a should have a well-functioning, formal, reflexive intelligence, which is what schooling does. Our schooling systems nowadays tend to teach people how to be rational, critical thinkers, right? Ideally. Yeah, ideally. Yeah, of course, there's always the traumas and everything that interfere with us, and which is why psychology is so important in helping us clean up our shadows and our wounds and the different things that we need to do to be a healthy functioning ego in the world. But as any adult knows, over time, even if you are handling all your responsibilities with your family and your job and everything else, if you haven't developed a deep spiritual life, a transpersonal life, you're going to feel you're missing something. And so, you go from the sensory physical to the emotional sexual, through the rep mind, to the rule role mind, to the mental reflexive. And then the next big stage is what psychology was calling humanistic psychology or existential psychology. And this is where Abraham Maslow and Eric Fromm and all the great psychologists of the late 50s and 60s started exploring that, wow, not only do you have to satisfy your basic needs, but once all those basic needs are satisfied, the desire for self-actualization becomes a drive. And so Ken was able to articulate all that. But then Ken did something nobody else had really done, is he subdivided the transpersonal stages into the psychic, the subtle, the causal, and the non-dual. And that's what Atman Project and Up From Eden so expertly showed, is how even mystical states have a developmental arc 
until finally perfect enlightenment where the self is fully transcended and you see that you are part of all of the entire universe. You are the entire universe. Your identity is ultimately the identity with God itself or Brahman. And that's exactly what the most sacred scriptures of the world all talk about from the Upanishads up through all the teachings of Buddhism and et cetera, et cetera. And so Ken's spectrum was able to follow that developmental arc in a way that nobody else did. And then not only that, he recognized that you can have a, a neurosis or a error happening in each of those developmental stages. And so he understood how the psychopathologies of psychosis and narcissistic borderline uh, misdevelopments could be addressed with you know, structural uncovering techniques and psychoanalysis and script analysis and identity neurosis could be addressed with introspection and this type of thing. And then not only that, he suggested that psychic disorders could be addressed by the path of the yogis, what he called the path of the yogis, or that subtle illusions, what he called the Vishnu complex, right, could be addressed by further meditative practices. So he gave an entire range. That's what Transformations of Consciousness, which came out in 1986, was kind of the epitome book capsulizing the phase two developmental process that he actually did with Daniel Brown and Bruce Ecker, was it? Do you know, Roger, right offhand? Uh, I think it was. Right behind you. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Brown uh, but... and Engler. Jack England. And that's where he suggested that, you know, not only do all these different developmental levels provide a worldview, they also have a way of healing the misdevelopments that occur through that process. Right. Can I just stop you here for a moment? Because you have sure. downloaded so much. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to make sure we don't lose this because there's a lot in what you said. And 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 the problem with Wilbur is, you know, you just outlined some of the main things of the book, but like there, there are you, you just listed about half a dozen different ideas, any one of which would have been a major breakthrough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's just step yeah, back right. and say that in in this phase two, the first book, uh, the Atman Project, which was on human development, he basically laid out the first full spectrum model of development. That is looking at the stages of development from infancy through adulthood, which Western psychology had mapped out, then continuing in post-conventional transpersonal stages all the way to uh, Atman Brahman, you know, various stages of awakening. Now, he'd refine that later, but that in itself is an amazing accomplishment. So let's just acknowledge that. And he made it look so easy, too. <laughs> well, well, maybe. <laughs> but in addition to that, he pointed out that, that and there here we're getting a little into, as you pointed out, his later book in 1986, Transformations of Consciousness, pointed out that at each stage, development can go wrong in some way. That there are stage-specific pathologies at every stage from infancy through awakening. Now, that in itself is an enormous contribution. But then he pointed out the specific kinds of therapies that are maybe most skillful and appropriate for each of those stage-specific pathologies. And, you know, we've had decades of psychology and therapies fighting with one another, saying, you know, the, the only true way is 
but no, can provide an answer. Well, it's maybe you know the most skillful therapy for this stage pathology is you know Freudian analysis, but at the later stage existentialism or or a contemplative stage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here a major a major mapping of development of potential pathologies and appropriate therapies. I mean, that's an extraordinary contribution. Absolutely. It was groundbreaking, right? I mean, you were there and you realized, and in a certain sense, it went beyond transpersonal psychology. A lot of his papers were published in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology. But as Ken started to recognize transpersonal psychology, he felt was too focused on altered states of consciousness. So that's when it was during the early 80s is when he started talking about integral psychology. He wanted to go off on his own and create a psychology that was able to do exactly what you so well described, Roger, was give a method and a model and a map that would show how each of the different treatment modalities could address the different levels of psychopathology. So then Freudian and Jungian analysis don't have to be in conflict, but they can actually work together in harmony. Beautiful, yes. And that is why so many professionals in the field were attracted to Ken Wilber's work. Okay, well, that was amazing. So stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Brad Reynolds on the nature of reality and the work of Ken Wilber, the master himself. Thank you very much for being a part of this conversation. We hope that you were moved as we are moved being part of it ourselves. We'd also like to say that this is being funded by Roger and myself. It comes out of our pockets. So if you would like to help us to mainly to get this podcast out to more people, because the bigger audience have, which is steadily growing, but the more people we can reach and the more marketing we can do, the more positive effect we can have on the world. So we've done a couple of ways, but we'd like you to buy us a cup of coffee. Very simple. And I do that with podcasts that I support and I find it's very satisfying. So thank you for your help. Thank you for your presence and thank you for all you are and all you do. We love you.